Acts chapter 2, verses 14. And we're going to read. It's going to take a little while, but we're going to read all six. So I'm going to begin verse 14. Read along with me. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be, made, be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. And as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
The book of Acts has been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. At the front of the book, you might see the Acts of the Apostles. And that's not entirely untrue, but really it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he acts upon people. The first half describes the Acts of Peter, chapters 1 through 12. And then the Acts of Paul, chapters 13 through 28. In Acts chapter 1, we see the risen Lord. In Acts chapter 2, you see the power of Pentecost. In verses 1 through 13, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come. The, the, The disciples and apostles have gathered. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The preaching of Pentecost takes place in verses 14 through 36. And then we read about the results of that preaching from verses 14 through 26. And so when I was asked to speak about this passage, the first sermon, the the theme of the conference was stand. And I, and I wanted to, to stick to the theme. It says, but Peter standing up with the 11. That means the 11 apostles who had joined them were standing full of power and confidence in the Holy Spirit. For those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, they panicked and they fled. But now it is with confidence and power that they have been witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And so Peter gives an explanation of the phenomenon that had taken place as the result of God's Holy Spirit being poured out because in verse 12 it says they were all amazed and perplexed. The reason why is because they were speaking in languages that they had never learned about the glory of God. Something incredible, something supernatural, something amazing was taking place. And so the very first sermon preached by Peter was in response to a question that was being asked. Whatever could this mean? And the sermon is the explanation. Peter is going to proclaim the gospel in verses 22 through 35. And then he's going to apply the message to his audience in verse 36. In verse 14 it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raises his voice, says to the men of Judea, and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And then he says, And heed my words. He's basically saying, I want you to pay attention. Peter preaches his first sermon without notes, without a great deal of preparation, unless you count walking with Jesus as preparation, unless unless all of these moments of being with Jesus and watching the crucifixion and then the resurrection. He's been with Jesus and then 3,000 people get saved. Even Billy Graham would have been impressed with that. I mean, can you imagine your best sermon ever is the first sermon you ever preached? Now this is going to cause me to 
pause for just a moment. Because I want you, throughout the course of this study, to be thinking about something that I'm going to ask you to think about. I mean, obviously, I want you to listen to me. But I also want you to think about the most impacting sermon that you've ever heard. The sermon that had the greatest effect on you. The reason why I'm asking you that question is going to become evident in just a moment. Charles Spurgeon had a preacher's college. And new students were invited to take a text and then preach with almost no preparation. And they were expected to preach to Spurgeon, who has been called the prince of preachers and is one of the most eloquent people who's ever opened up a Bible and his staff. And on one occasion, there was a student new from Scotland who was given the subject of Zacchaeus in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And the panicked student got up and he was shaking and he said... Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was wee of stature, and so am I. Zacchaeus went up a tree, and so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so will I. And then he left, and he just sat down. You can imagine how panicked if someone asked you to say something. Spurgeon urged his congregation to bring their Bibles and search the scripture. He wanted them to test him. He wanted them to be Bereans. He wanted them to search the scriptures to see whether or not these things were so. Spurgeon said, quote, what's the best way of hearing the word? He would say, is it not to search and see what the preacher says is really according to the word of God? Thus, I entreat you to search the scriptures to see if what's being taught to you is true. So what's the, ser- what's the best sermon you've ever heard? Was it Christ's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 and 7? The most famous sermon by the most famous preacher? Was it Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Whatever it was, Peter's sermon have all of the elements of what makes a great sermon a great sermon. The sermon was simple. It wasn't complex. It was An answer to a question. God poured out his Holy Spirit. The crowds shook. They were watching a supernatural manifestation of people speaking in languages that they never heard about the wonderful works of God in verse 11. They were amazed and perplexed. Others were mocking saying, these guys are drunk. They're inebriated. They're talking nonsense. And so Peter uses this as a platform to go, hey, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody drinks at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I'm not going to make any Irish jokes at this point. So don't tempt me. 
But here, here's the point. The sermon was simple. If you are given an opportunity to speak, do it simply. Chuck Smith, my pastor, would say, preach the word simply and simply preach the word. The average person has a vocabulary of about 5,000 words. The average college graduate has a vocabulary of about 80,000 words. I'll be honest with you, and you guys already know this. I literally have to fight to keep it simple. Some of you get frustrated with me because you go, I have no idea what he's talking about. You know, we don't have to use the term supralapsinarianism in every single sermon that we preach. For those of you who don't even know what that means, it's this idea of double predestination. But this is my point. The most effective sermon is going to be the one that is heard and understood. And his is simple. And the sermon was scriptural. Peter's sermon is Filled with God's word. In verse 16 it says, But this is that which was spoken to us by the prophet Joel. Any pastor who just simply gets up and talks about stuff is probably going to be in big trouble. But here, here's my point. It is biblically based. At Billy Graham's funeral, Franklin reminded the world that his father would come up to the pulpit. And at the funeral, he held up his Bible and he goes, "My Franklin would say, my father said, the Bible says, turn into your Bible. Turn to the gospel of John. Turn to the gospel of Matthew. He's going, the, the, the sermon is going to be biblically based. And so many people were living in a world where, for whatever reason, the Bible is the last thing that's open. Some of you have probably gone to churches and you're, you're wondering whether or not they're going to actually open up the Bible and read the scripture. I'm going to suggest that we have to have a biblical basis for what we say. In this sermon, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, apparently from memory. He quotes Psalm 16 from memory. He's, he quotes Psalm 110 from memory. You know, I grew up in a church that give very little attention to the Bible. Some of you may have grown up in a church where they begin with the text, they depart from the text, and then they never return to the text. You're probably wondering why I'm giving you this sermon. Because you're thinking, I'm not a preacher and I'm not a teacher and I'll probably never give a sermon. But the truth is, every contact and every conversation that you come in contact with is, in a way, a sermon. You're going to be saying something about yourself and about God. 
the sermon's theme was the Savior. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 36. Jesus of Nazareth. This man. This Jesus. God made Jesus. Whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Over and over and over again. He is going to return to the theme of Jesus, that this is about Jesus. He's got something to say about Jesus. And I grew up during the height of the Jesus movement. Do you realize that on March 5th, this last Monday, when I was giving this sermon to pastors and teachers, it was March 5th, 1973, that I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Lord and Savior. In other words, I heard a sermon. I heard a person. I was in this tent, and there were 2,000 people in this tent. And there was a young man who was less than 21 years old with a great big fuzzy afro and overall jeans preaching the gospel from John chapter 11. 45 years ago, thousands of kids were coming to Christ. Thousands were being baptized. And you can imagine that for many people, they were getting upset because so many young people were coming to church and so many people were getting saved. And I was reading a a newspaper article in, in, the, in one of the Orange County newspapers, they were interviewing a pastor and, and they said, what do you suppose the attraction is? Why are all of these people going to church? And this, this one pastor said, the only thing that this church has to offer those young people is Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> laughing is, is the right response. The only thing that this church has to offer them is Jesus. And guess what? Unless you're a church that offers Jesus as the solution to the problem of sin, unless you're a church that actually points people to Jesus, that recognizes that it's Jesus that God has sent from heaven to be the solution to the problem of sin. And so guess what? There's so many people that won't preach Christ. They'll preach about anything. And don't get me wrong. There's times when we have to talk about marriage. And there's time where we have to talk about sin. And there's times when we have to talk about problems and difficulties and issues. But guess what? If a large part of your ministry isn't devoted to Christ, then something's probably wrong. Preach Christ. Point people to Jesus. It's Jesus who saves. Martin Luther said, quote, I preach as though Christ was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is coming to earth tomorrow. In the Jesus movement, there was a sense of urgency. There are people who, for whatever reason, don't believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. But guess what? I believe that he really can. And I don't say that in order to be a Calvary pastor. I say it because I really believe it. Spurgeon said, quote, the pastor who wants to keep his church full of people should first of all preach the gospel. Then he should preach the gospel. 
keeping the following three adverbs in his mind. Earnestly, interestingly, fully. That's what I've tried to do with you. For those of you who are here on Sunday, remember we've been speaking about Matthew chapter 27 and we've made a journey to Calvary and to the cross of Calvary. And how can you talk about the cross without talking about the gospel? This last Sunday, remember I said, I was quoting Billy Graham, who, when Billy Graham said, when I look at the cross, I see three things. I see the sinfulness of man and I see the love of God and I see the singular solution for salvation. Preach Christ. Paul preached the gospel. Not with simple words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.17. It says, for since... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So the sermon was simple. The sermon was scriptural. The sermon was practical. It begins by answering a question. How do I explain what I see? How do I explain what's going on all around me? And sometimes that's the conversation that we have to have. How can you explain what's going on? It's the problematic question that I've had to ask myself. How do I explain what's going on in our church? How do I explain the pain and the emptiness and the darkness? How do I explain the fact that people are taking their life? How do I explain that husbands are leaving their wives? How do I explain so much problems that are taking place? Where do we come up with the answer? How do we come up with the solution? The sermon results in conviction and action. If you look at the text in chapter 2 in verse 37, look what it says. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? Peter has just preached a sermon. God sent Jesus to the earth. Jesus ascended into heaven. He said that when he would do it, he was going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. Supernatural manifestations have, are taking place among us. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins so that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 38. The sermon was spirit-filled. It was based on the scripture. It pointed people to the Savior. But we're living in a time and we're living in a world that's really, really reluctant to hear the gospel and the Bible's solution to the problems that we face. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 
4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. You've been entrusted with a treasure. What just happened? The people were asking. Peter's response, the spirit has come in verses 15 through 21. And you're going to note throughout the sermon, Peter's addressing Jewish people and almost certainly an unbelieving audience. We know that from verse 14, verse 22, verse 29, verse 36. These are Jews. These are Jewish people. Pentecost is a Jewish feast. Gentiles are rarely involved in Jewish festivals and feasts, but some Gentiles would come from all over the Mediterranean and they would show up because they had heard that about the God of the Bible. And they wondered whether or not the God of the Bible was the real God. Peter addresses the Jewish nation to prove to them that this Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And that God has raised him from the dead. And so Peter makes a reference to Joel's prophecy. He's literally making a reference to Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32. And so there's an immediate problem. There's an immediate problem in the text. Is Peter claiming that the prophecy was fulfilled at that very moment? And Bible scholars point to the particulars that these won't be fulfilled until the last days, the days immediately preceding the return of Jesus, Peter's point seems to be that the audience should have been aware that there was this prophet, that there was this prophet named Joel, that Joel prophesied that there would come a time when God would send his Holy Spirit and supernatural things would break out and break loose. Peter's point seems to be that the audience should have known this. That they should have been able to recognize a work of the Holy Spirit when they see it. And when I was a kid growing up, there was this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit was moving and kids were being saved. I mean, think about it. I mean, you may not know this, but in high school, I was voted most likely to go to hell. My brother was voted most likely to marry outside of his own species. Do you know what that means? That spells a troubled family. That spells a dysfunctional family. I was the person that your parents warned you about to not be with. That if you associated with me, almost certainly you were going to get in trouble. But God was moving. People were praying. People were caring. People would see not the best, but the worst. And then they would begin to pray for them and go, Oh Lord, I pray for this person. And someone had enough courage to invite me to go to a Christian concert. So what's Peter saying? This is the same spirit that was spoken by the 
Joel, the prophet. What happened at Pentecost is just the beginning of God's blessings for Israel. But here's, we have to pause for a moment. Did the nation receive Jesus? Did they come to Christ? Now we see in this text that 3,000 people got saved and then thousands more got saved. But guess what? As the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months and the months turned into years, fewer and fewer people were getting saved. Fewer and fewer people were, were, were believing and the, the, God sent the Spirit to the Samaritans, poured out his spirit on the Samaritans, they started to get saved. Paul gets saved, those of you who are familiar with this book, Acts, and he will go out to the Gentiles and he will preach the gospel and literally thousands and then tens of thousands of Gentiles will be saved. Had the nation of Israel responded to the apostles preaching instead of arresting them and then killing Stephen in Acts chapter 3, according to the times of refreshing it talks about, would come along with Christ's kingdom. Verses 17 and 18 take place on Pentecost, but verses 19 through 21 did not take place and will not take place until the times of the ends. Between verses 18 and 19 would unfold the entire church age. The time will come when God's Holy Spirit will work in power and God's Holy Spirit being poured out on Jews and Gentiles and signs and wonders in heaven. And these signs and wonders are spoken of in the book of Revelation. Richard Cecil wrote, quote, To love to preach is one thing. To love those to whom we preach is quite another. It's one thing to really like to speak and to preach. But sometimes the speaker or the preacher loses touch with the people who are listening. They refuse to pause and look into the faces and think about their life and their difficulties and their marriages and, or their relationships, or their health, or their circumstances, or the emptiness, or the difficulty, or the drug addictions, or the other things that are happening. And so guess what? We owe it to one another to, again, like what I've been telling you, to look into each other's lives and care about one another. I told this group of pastors and leaders... You love to preach. But do you love the people that you preach to? You owe it to them to rightly divide the word of truth. If you love the word of God, you owe it to people to tell them the word of God and then rightly discern what the word of God is saying. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 4 verse 24? He said, I want you to take heed to what you hear. Jesus is saying, pay attention to what you're listening to. 
Because sometimes we go to church or we will go to the service or we'll hear the person and they're supposed to be preaching the word of God. And when the word of God is preached, the great God is giving us his charge because the implication seems to be that these are issues of life and death and it's never been more real to me than in the last three months. Because we've had people in our church, some of them sitting in the chair that you might be sitting in right at this very moment, who will hear the word of God preached and they will get up and they will go out the door and they will kill themselves. Do you know how frustrating that is for me as the pastor? Not not just the heartbreak of the fact that they've killed themselves, but the heartbreak of the fact of what could I have said? What could I have done? What could I have said to cause a person who is so empty and so hurting in such terrible circumstances that they're not going to reach out? They're not going to say something. They're not going to do something. We have to offer a biblical explanation for what's going on inside of people's lives. And if you really, truly believe that the Bible is the answer, then you have a responsibility to know it and love it and learn it and share it. Billy Graham used to say, a vacillating unbeliever has no respect for the man who lacks the courage to preach what he believes, unquote. It's my job to actually believe what I'm telling you. And it's your job to believe the Bible. Here's the sad fact. You can't give what you don't have. But if you have hope, if you really believe that the Bible's true, if you really believe that God is in the business of changing people's lives, of forgiving sins and reconciling people and, and changing them from the inside out, then you need to impart that to others. How did this happen? Jesus is alive in verses 22 through 35. It's one thing to say that Jesus is alive, and it's another thing to prove it. And so Peter is going to offer five convincing arguments that Jesus is alive. Now, again, remember what's happening. This is 40 days, 40 days, count it, 44 zero days from the time that Jesus marched into Jerusalem, was killed, and came back to life, and then ascended into heaven. This is news that has just taken place. And so he reminds them of the life and the miracles of Jesus. He reminds them that these things weren't done 
privately, but publicly and openly. They were in Jerusalem. Each and every one of them could have went to the empty grave. Each and every one of them could have talked to Mary Magdalene. Each and every one of them could have interviewed all of the apostles. The same Jesus who raised the dead wouldn't remain dead, he says in verses 22 through 24. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 17, therefore my father loves me. Because I lay down my life, I will take it up again, unquote. Jesus went on and explained in verse 18 of John chapter 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This is the command that I received from my father. Jesus had told the apostles and they had no idea what he was talking about. He was basically saying, if you kill me, I will come back to life. I have the ability to do that. If you kill me, I don't have the ability to bring my life back. Have you ever met someone who said, kill me and I'll come back to life? Every single person who's ever said that, who's ever died, never came back to life. Except for one, Jesus so he talks, he offers the proof of the life and the miracles of Jesus in history. And then he provides predictive prophecy. And, and he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, how David wrote that Messiah's soul would, would not remain in Sheol, the grave. In other words, that he would die, the Messiah would die, but he wouldn't stay dead. That even the scriptures, Psalm 16, anticipated that the Messiah is going to come back to life. And so he points to David's tomb, which is with him, right at that very moment. And then number three, he talks about the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. In verse 32, it says... This Jesus God raised up of which we are all witnesses. When he says all of us, it's all of the 11 who stood up with him. In other words, there's Peter, there's James, there's John, there's the whole crew. And you could go to each one and they would say, I saw him. I saw him. Thomas could say, not only did I see him, but I touched him. John could say, I touched him. So there's the life and the miracles. There's predictive prophecies. There's the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. There's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I go, I'm going to send the Spirit in verse 33. He provides a fifth reason. God made Christ both king and Lord. He quotes Psalm 110, which pictures the Messiah as the king in verses 1 through 3, the priest in verse 4, the victorious warrior in verses 5 through 7 of Psalm 110, which is also clearly predictive prophecy. But Psalm 110 verse 1 promises that the Messiah is going to come back to life. And then he says, why did all of this happen? Verse 36, to save sinners. Verse 36, to save sinners. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus who you crucified. Both Lord and Christ. This is interesting to me. 
the religious leaders in Herod killed John the Baptist and killed Jesus. The resurrection of Christ was the promised sign of Jonah. Remember, the religious leaders said, show us a sign. And he said, no sign's going to be given to you other than the sign of Jonah. That he was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Peter's point comes home with power. He basically says, you should have known this. God made Jesus Lord and Christ and Peter and the apostles didn't make this up. Christianity isn't something that I invented. It isn't something that Billy Graham invented. It isn't something that Charles Spurgeon invented. It isn't something that John Wesley invented. It isn't something that they invented. God sent Jesus to die on the cross. And so it, that's, it's not this, this object of fabrication. He'll say that he preaches Christ crucified for sin. Jesus isn't some self-made Messiah. God made him Lord and King. John Phillips writes, quote, They crucified him. God crowned him. They entombed him. God enthroned him. They cast him out. God cast him up. They executed him. God exalted him. Peter's conclusion was a declaration, but it was also an accusation. Jesus is your Messiah, but you crucified him. Now, this is interesting to me because Peter doesn't present the cross as the place simply where the sinless substitute died for the world. He presents it to them as the place where they killed their Messiah. The reason why this has become so very, very important to you is because the way that you preach the gospel and teach the gospel and present the gospel, you can do it in a way where you feel like you have no hope whatsoever <laughs> or where there is hope. The hope comes in verse 38. Repent. Believe the gospel. Be baptized. This is Peter's way of saying all of these horrible and terrible things have happened. But guess what? God's poured out his Holy Spirit. I'm here to tell you that he will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will reconcile you. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, said, Preaching should break a hard heart. And it should heal a broken heart. The guilty need relief. Spurgeon said, some are dead. You must rouse them. Some are troubled. You must comfort them. Others are burdened. You must point them to the burden bearer. Others are puzzled. You must enlighten them. Still others are careless and indifferent. 
you must warn them and woo them. And so Peter answers the question. What in the world does all of this mean? And so we have to answer the question with a question. What shall we do? Peter's sermon was great. It was great because it was spirit-led and spirit-filled. Peter's sermon was great because Peter was full of Jesus and full of the scripture and full of the Holy Spirit. But the sermon was greatest for the 3,000 people who heard it and believed it and repented and turned to Jesus. You see, the best thing about a sermon is what it does for us and to us. Because we understand something. It's possible to hear something and be completely unaffected. In verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. In one sense, in a very real sense, the only people who heard Peter's sermon that day were the people who got saved. And it made me think about my life. Remember I asked you the question, what's the most important sermon that you've ever heard? Well, mine took place 45 years ago, last Monday. I was hearing a person preach. A person invited me, and I didn't want to go. But it was a concert. There were cheerleaders, and I thought, free food, cheerleaders, what could go wrong? But something went terribly wrong. Something went terribly wrong because I started to panic because I so did not want to be there and I so did not want to be with these people. But the preacher opened up John chapter 11. You know the story. It's about Lazarus from Bethany. He had two sisters named Mary and Martha. And to make a long story short, they had invited Jesus to come because the brother had fallen sick, but Jesus delayed his coming and Lazarus died and he was dead for some four days. And when you come to the end of John chapter 11, it says in verse 38, Then Jesus, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. In verse 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha said, But Lord, by now... In the old King James, this is, there was no NIV translation when I got saved. There was no new King James. There was just old King James. And this preacher said, but Lord, he stinketh. That might not sound all that impressive to you, but to my 16-year-old ears, at that very moment, the loudest voice, it, was, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was inside of my heart. I heard almost a scream. 
you stinketh. And I went, I'm thinking it might be adolescent hygiene issues. You know, kids have to be taught to use deodorant and bathe. I don't know if you've ever smelled a rotting and a decomposing body. I hope you never have to. But if you've ever come across a dead person and they've been dead for quite some time or even a short amount of time, the odor that's released is unmistakable. Death has an unmistakable smell. And at that moment, when I heard the voice say, you stinketh, I understood as best as a 16-year-old could understand the depth of my wickedness, the rottenness of my sinfulness, the horror of my life, the wickedness of what I had done. And when he continued to read, he said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And he continued reading And it says, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you'll always hear me because of the people who are standing by. I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. At 16, I did not know this. That if Jesus had just simply said, come forth, every dead person within the sound of his, it would have been like the night of the zombie apocalypse. All of these dead people coming back to life. But he says, Lazarus, come forth. And you know the story. It says, and he who had died came out, bound hand and foot and grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. But when I heard those words, for the first time in my life, I wondered that if Jesus could bring a rotting, decomposing, dead person back to life, I wonder if he could save me. I wonder if he could save me. And it just so happened at that very moment the preacher said, you're probably wondering if Jesus could do that for you. And it was as if the lights went on. I wondered if Jesus could bring this dead person to life, if he could bring me to life. And there was an invitation. There's thousands, thousands and thousands of people in this place. Three people came, came forward. I was one of them. <laughs> and I remember walking up, and the preacher looked so disappointed. He was so disappointed. And I thought, how does this guy know me? <laughs> and I later found out that this was at a time where hundreds of people were responding. And a lot of prayer, and a lot of effort, and a lot of time 
went into preparing that, that service. And so if only three people got saved, it was kind of a bust. But I prayed to receive Jesus that night. And I I got saved. Gloriously saved. One week after I got saved, I started sharing Christ with my best friend who would come over every week. And he was so angry. Because we would get high and we would do awful things and and he said you this can't be possible you don't change just like that you don't just change you don't you're just not all of a sudden one person and then you're somebody else and i said i have changed jesus changes you he will forgive you he will wash you and cleanse you and my 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 friend pushed me up against the wall and he said stop talking to me about jesus you're not even a good catholic And I said, Skip, I'm going to continue to tell you about Jesus. By the way, my best friend was Skip Heitzig. Six months later, we were in San Jose, California, and he was watching a Billy Graham crusade, and he received Christ as his Savior. The reason why I'm telling you this is we need a Savior who will save us. Not just four minutes or four weeks or four months or even 45 years. We need a Savior who will save us forever. Amen is right. You see, it's the gospel. It's the Lord Jesus that saves. And if we are going to Help, hurting, empty, pain-filled, guilt-filled, religious, and non-religious people. They need to hear the gospel. And it has to be simple. And it has to be based on the Bible. And it has to point people to Jesus. And so, I've made it my ambition to stay true to the word, to open up our Bible, that each and every time you come here, no matter who's teaching, they should be able to say, turn in your Bible to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's amazing that you save people. And it's most amazing that you could save somebody like me. And Lord, I pray, even now as we get ready to have communion, that Lord, we would remember the best sermon that we ever heard and and all of a sudden it becomes clear to us. It's the one that pointed us to Jesus. It's the very first sermon that we ever heard and we understood, we understood, we understood that, that the gospel was true and that it was Holy Spirit inspired and we believed it and our lives were changed as a result of it. 
And so, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to your word and that we would be faithful to the gospel and that we would point people to Jesus. And Lord, again, even as we take communion and we remember that Jesus shed his blood, that Jesus offered his body, that Jesus did this for the forgiveness of sin so that we would be reconciled to the Father and so that we could live, not just for a moment, not just for a day, not just for a week or even a month or even years, but so that we could live forever. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would fortify our resolve, that we would be men and women who love this Bible, who endeavor to yield to the Holy Spirit, that we invite you, Lord, to use us to be a conduit so that men and women's lives could be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go.